Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. This episode is sponsored by MindBodyGreen Classes and Trainings, where you can learn from world-class experts from the comfort of your own home. The MindBodyGreen Class Library has educational programs you can't find anywhere else. From yoga and meditation to nutrition and personal growth, our classes have something for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a wellness warrior, MindBodyGreen Classes will take you further on your wellness journey. You can find our classes at mindbodygreen.com classes. That's mindbodygreen.com slash classes. Enter the promo code podcast on checkout to receive 15% off your next purchase. When you think of badass female executives, Sarah Rob O'Hagan immediately comes to mind. She is currently the CEO of Flywheel Sports and has been described in the media as a superwoman undercover and a Pied Piper of potential. She's also the best-selling author of the amazing book, Extreme You, and has held executive positions at everywhere from Equinox, Gatorade, Nike, Atari, and Virgin. She is an amazing and prolific public speaker, and we're delighted she's here with us today. Hey, it's Jason Wachab, and I am here at Mind Body Green on the Mind Body Green podcast. And today we have the amazing Sarah Rabo Hagen, the best-selling author of Extreme You which everyone has to pick up. It's an amazing <laughs> book. If you're an entrepreneur or want to be an entrepreneur or just have a job, you need <laughs> to read this book. And Sarah's also the CEO of Flywheel. Yeah. Amazing that you're here. Thank I'm you so much. I'm loving being here. So I, I want to start in the beginning because if, if listeners may notice, you have an accent. I have from, an accent. From New Zealand. Yeah. So talk to me about like yeah. what, what was it like growing up in New Zealand and how did that yeah. shape you? Well, there are a lot of sheep. <laughs> we'll start there. I always it's generally herd the, mentality. Yeah, is this a metaphor exactly, for people yeah. or or <laughs> the <laughs> actual sheep? <laughs> I always say that's my excuse for leading from behind, like a good okay. shepherd. You know, okay. I like that. <laughs> yeah, no, but um, gosh, New Zealand is. I joke about it, but it's you know four million people. Yeah. So and it's a long way away. It's the bottom of the world. And I think what's really neat about growing up in a country like that is it has what I call the underdog advantage. Like mm. you, you go through life, you know, you think about like average, you know, Olympic events in history. Mm -hmm. The US always expects to be at the top of the medal table, right? right? Like, and if we're not, we are really mad at ourselves. The Kiwis, like if we get a bronze, it's a party. You know? right. <laughs> like we're super stoked. You guys like to party too, New we Zealand? We like to party. Yes. But I think we swing hard because we don't, you know, we don't have the expectation of being number one. So mm -hmm. therefore, I think that the culture is very much like, you've got to go explore the world. You've got to take risks and do the best that you can and sort of live like you have nothing to lose because it's not like you're in this sort of dominant position as a country. Well, how do you, something you talk about in the book a lot is this idea of winning. So like, mm. how do you change the mindset from mm. like, you know, you say the US, if the US is expected to win a medal where mm. the Kiwis are happy just to get a bronze, like, was there like a mindset change you had to go Yeah, it's, it's interesting you ask that because I feel like now we were happy to get a bronze, but we always wanted to win. Right. And we always wanted to, like, we never sort of took our small smallness as an excuse not to play to win, right? right. Um, but I think it's different when you don't have that expectation, you know, like mm. you, you go into it going as hard as you possibly can, but it's not like I've, I've, I have to play on the defense and not lose mm -hmm. because I was already in the front, you know? And I think sometimes in the US, that's what we can, we can be a little bit like that because it's like we've, everything's working so well. You think about, you know, the classic, kid who's gone through college it's like I've got amazing grades right. I've had this great education I cannot fuck it up you know <laughs> and so you end up almost playing a little bit more on defense sure. <clears throat> so did you know so you've worked for people who don't know you've Virgin Gatorade mm -hmm. Equinox mm -hmm. and now Flywheel. Flywheel you've worked at some of the the biggest brands in wellness did mm -hmm. you 
know this is where you'd end up as like a teenager in New no. Zealand? Like where, where was your head at back then? No, not at all. Isn't that funny? Um, I wanted to be a vet. Okay. So clearly. That says a lot about people. You yeah. care for animals. Care for animals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I, I actually didn't have the intellectual capacity. I was terrible at science. So that ruled okay. that one out. But um, it's funny, I didn't know that I was gonna end up in sports, fitness, wellness, healthy living, any of the above. But I feel like as I experimented with different roles in my career, I knew where I really sort of shone, where I came to life, where I just loved what I was doing. And that coincided with certainly the experiences at places like Nike and then obviously Gatorade and, and Equinox. So I. It's almost like you, you sort of discover it as you're going along, I think. Right. You can't necessarily plan when you're in your teens what you're going to love when you're 45. So talk to me about your first job mm. in this space. Yeah. So I, well, I uh, quite famously got fired twice in my 20s. Yes, which I think you should talk about. <laughs> so I had been in the airline industry, actually, for about eight years, and then I went, uh, I worked for Virgin Megastores. So that was, I went from Virgin Atlantic Airways to yeah. the Virgin Megastores, which was my kind of like, yes, I'm finally gonna move into a different arena, like sure. outside of airlines. And for a number of reasons, which we can go into, I got, I got fired. Um, so by the time I landed at Nike, which was my first foray into sports, fitness, healthy, everything, I had been fired twice you know, in a row. So I was just so desperate not to get so how, fired. So how old were you at this point? <laughs> it was like 20, I think I was 28. Was so 28, were you 29? asking the questions, is this me? Or was oh, it like, yeah. you know, fuck you, you guys yeah. didn't, you know, I, that place sucks. <laughs> yeah, so the first time I did that, fuck you. And then I realized within about three weeks, mm, here's the thing, it's like when you tell people, you know, you're out socially and it's like, hey, where do you work? I was like, well, nowhere. Why? Uh, well, I recently let you start like sure. sort of making stuff up. And then you notice the other person looking at you is kind of looking straight through you. In other words, they don't really believe you right. <laughs> because you don't really believe yourself because you actually realize after self-reflecting for a little while that you can blame it on others. But when you're really honest about it, you right. know your behaviors had quite a bit to do with it. So by the time I got to Nike, I was just like, I had really beaten myself up in terms of, whoa, I made some really bad moves. And I think I just was more humble than any human being because I knew that I couldn't afford to have this happen again. I was like, you know, if this happens three times. So I, what did you learn about yourself in the process? Um, I, think, I think I learned, uh, first of all, that you're you can have great successes and like I had literally come from at 26 years old partying at the Cannes Film Festival with Richard Branson I mean literally <laughs> my 26th birthday party so I thought I was this is it, success you know yeah. yeah and and what I learned is that success is what is that like just because I happen to have had some things go right in my career and had this unlikely opportunity doesn't mean I'm any better than anyone else around me right. I've got a every day keep working to sort of contribute at a higher level. And I think it was a huge slap in the face of like, whoa, you can't coast on what happened yesterday or five years ago. You, it's what, what are you doing for me today? And so I think from that point forward, like I have probably career-wise, I have lived every day of my career, even when I had some shining successes later on, like going to bed at night going, I could get fired tomorrow. <laughs> so is that what happened? Was it a mindset shift where you had success yes. and just decided to coast and then coasting became a problem? I don't think if it, I don't think it was coast because I was very, very ambitious and I was working hard. It was arrogance is what it was. It. I think it was like, I can do no wrong. So I can just keep, you know, right. doing what I've been doing and everyone should listen to me. <laughs> so it was like, I'm not open to feedback. I don't talk yeah. to people. It's my way or the highway. Yeah, like, what it is was it? definitely that. And it was also, um, I think I was unwilling to be vulnerable. And I think this sure. is a really important lesson um, for particularly 20-somethings. Like I was in that, I remember when I got fired the first time, I was in an industry I knew nothing about, music. Mm -hmm. 
it was an industry in distress. Napster had sure. just come along, so the whole industry sure. was trying to figure itself Everyone out. Everyone was it's time to leave, not yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, it was quite a profound learning experience to go through it, actually. But I remember looking back, what I should have done is just put my hand up and said, this is new to me. I don't know what I'm doing. We're all fighting tooth and nail to get this business back on its feet. I need help. Right. Had I done that, it would have ended completely differently. But I was arrogant. And I think I think there's something that happens in your 20s where you don't want to be seen as weak. You want to, you know, I've just been hired in this job. I need to prove that I am sure. worth whatever I've been hired to do. And I think that's a huge mistake, you know? Right. Well, <laughs> how, how do you teach vulnerability? Yeah. That's a, how do you... It's interesting you ask that because, you know, for me, I had such embarrassing, humiliating failures that I, I was forced into learning it. And I have often wondered, like, how could I have learned those same lessons without going through that embarrassing pain, sure. really? And I don't know the answer to that because I think, I think how do you learn vulnerability? You learn by doing, by experimenting, right. but it takes courage to take that step forward. Like right. I do remember when I arrived at Nike, every single day I would ask people if there was anything I didn't understand <laughs> because I was just at that point, I was like, I can't afford to fail. It's not working for me what I was doing before. I just, it, it came from almost a point of desperation, you know? Sure. So how do you, what does that look like today for you? You know, you're the mm. CEO of Flywheel, mm. pretty big company. You know, on one hand, you're trying to project confidence and lead, yeah. but on the other hand, vulnerability is still yeah. important. How do you Definitely. balance that? Um, and how do you encourage that? Yeah, how do you encourage it? Because I think some people it? are scared when they come to the boss, it's, I have the answer, and yes. what if you don't? And yes, and I would say it's, I don't know that it ever becomes easy, but I think it's so important as the boss to demonstrate it. So sure. I quite openly will say in meetings, here's, you know, something's being explained to me and I simply don't understand it. I'll right. say, hey, I don't understand what, can you explain that to me again? Right. And I have that pang of, this is a little embarrassing, is everyone around the table wondering why I don't get this, you know? Sure. But I also kind of push through it, knowing that oftentimes if, everyone else on the table doesn't doesn't get it either. That's what you'll find. I, I suppose Everyone's you're just right. looking at you, and oh, she gets it. I guess it's okay. Well, that's a great point because I think when I have that pang of fear of are people going to think the boss is an idiot, I push through it, knowing that if I did it, hopefully someone else around the table will feel comfortable. It's okay to do right. that, which as a group means that we're going to be more able to learn actually, mm -hmm. because I, I think we've all been in cultures and with, you know, individuals who have all the answers sure. and, you know, are not willing to listen. And we know where that can lead, you know, right. I've seen definitely the bad side of that. So I, I feel like it's just, it's, it's a muscle that you have to keep working. Like it's sure. not something I think that you switch on one day and it's like, I'll be vulnerable for the rest of my life. I think you have to, like mentally think about doing it. So it seems like you learned a lot about vulnerability from Virgin and a little bit from, from Nike. Mm -hmm. So wh when you left, I want to like walk through your career and like, mm. if you could like, what were the biggest takeaways from these yeah. companies? Like the biggest lessons? So yeah. moving on from Nike, like what was the biggest takeaway from you? Well, first of all, I'd say it was a really powerful experience going from Virgin that by the way, no longer exists sure. because music retail was disrupted and yeah. you know <laughs> it's a good lesson for entrepreneurs and business people of you know i still stand here today and go what virgin megastores and tower records were still deserve to exist in the world they mm -hmm. were the arbiter of taste for people right. who are into music there's now things called spotify and all right. these other things that came along but they were unable to sort of stay ahead of changing mm -hmm. environmental factors Fast forward to Nike, which has, you know, what is it now? 40, 50 year old company, sure. gazillions of dollars, like sustaining consistently at the front of its um, category. And what's the difference? You know, Nike is just the world-class leader at disrupting themselves, constantly being innovative, constantly onboarding new people and, 
You see, I, my experience was certainly like they, it was hard to break into the culture, but once mm -hmm. you did, they sucked your brain dry in a, in a good way, yep. you know, in terms of people really well, it's hard learned to, you from You walk each around other. that campus and it's just unbelievably inspiring. Oh, the, the, yeah. The, the big, the, the photos of the oh, legends and the yeah, statues and the totally. whole, it's like. I'm getting actually chills yeah. hearing you say that. Because <laughs> I think one of the things that I, took away from Nike that I am definitely applying, have applied, but trying to apply in the, in the world I'm in now is it, to be a great sustaining company, you have to constantly have new thinking, mm -hmm. but you must never, ever, ever lose sight of the roots and the heritage and where it started sure. and everything you just said. You know, you walk onto that campus and Steve Prefontaine is the first sure. hallway you go into, sure. you know, and that is the oh i'm getting chills <laughs> do you read phil's book totally loved it loved it because Talk about cash flow problems i had no I idea know. for like 25 years yes. like that would have drove most people into the grave and i think i say every young entrepreneur today should read that book Shoe because dog, yeah amazing it's, it's like such a lesson in commitment and if you want to build something that really has an impact in the world, it doesn't happen in five years. No. And it's not about an exit strategy. No, it to literally your point. took 20, 20 or so yeah. years before, like on the verge of bankruptcy, yeah. number of times. Yeah. And still, like, yeah. you know, you get to that point in the book when I think he was in his early 40s when he finally bought a house. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Great lesson for all of us, I feel like. And, and you look at what it has become and it's anchored by the most incredible heritage story, this most incredible culture. And I think that is what yeah. great companies are built on. So what if there were like one thing that stands out about that brand, like why mm. they've been able to, you know, great brands can come and go, but there's, mm. there seems to be something about yeah. that brand, like what that just withholds the test of time. What is it? Honestly, it seems so simple, but it's um, innovation and it's serving the needs of the athlete. Like mm. it, every time I've been in companies that are struggling, it's because they don't have a North Star of who is the consumer that they are trying to solve a problem for. Instead, mm -hmm. they're looking at what's the competition doing? Like what's this sure. person, you know, and, and you know, in my experience, fast forward to when I was at Gatorade, which is owned by yep. PepsiCo. Who's so you go from Nike to Gatorade. Yeah. So you're going from one big, so. <laughs> totally. And you would, you know, both great sports brands. Sure. But the second one was owned by a company whose entire industry, CPG, is like based on market share. Like sure. everything we do, if Coke does this, Pepsi does that. Yep. If, you know, and to me, like, you know, I get, Obviously, Gatorade's a longer story, but I arrived when the business was in decline and I was part of the team that um, helped turn it around. Why did it get to decline? Because they'd lost sight of who they were serving mm -hmm. and they'd lost sight of your your job in business is to solve problems for the consumer. That's what Nike does beautifully. Every single person who's there, no matter what department, what level, wherever, every day it's like, does this product help an athlete be better? It's very simple. Right. And then so you go to you go to Gatorade. Mm. So you're moving around now. Yeah. You've gone from so yes. you're in Portland to now Portland to Chicago, Chicago. And with a stop a couple of stops now. I had three children over say, the space of four years in three different states. <laughs> wow. Yes. yes. So what how did just like how did you do that? Mm. Like what did balance or, or was balanced? Mm. I know you talk about extreme in your book, but yes. like, like, how, yes, that, <laughs> that was not a time of a lot of balance. I will be honest, but, um, how did I do that? I mean, one of the things I do talk about in the book is, um, partnership. You know, I happen to be married to a total stud who is the lead parent in our family. And so, um, it, you know, it was an incredibly intense time. You know, it was a period of, probably eight years that feels like a total blur, but I think we both knuckled down together and we really played very well as a team. Like we knew what our roles were in terms yeah. of just getting through it, really. And then so from Gatorade, you decide to yeah. you move on. Yeah. Equinox is the next stop. Yep, so we were in Chicago with Gatorade for four years yeah. and I, um, it, it was a very tough decision to leave because yeah. I was, I deeply, deeply passionate about that brand and the company and the team. And we, you know, led this turnaround and we'd been successful and, 
it was an extraordinary career experience and really hard to leave. But in the end, um, I kind of knew like Gatorade is part of PepsiCo, which is a mm-hmm. much, much bigger sure. company. And it's, you know, it's interesting towards you about health and wellness because that is a company that is has very, very tough natural headwinds right now because oh, yeah. the consumers shifted away from sugar and salt as they should. Yep. And so in my head, I was like, you know, I would rather move to where I know my passion lies and where I'm very in tune with the mm-hmm. consumer. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I would often go out socially and people say, where do you, where do you work? And you say PepsiCo, and you get these horrible looks right. on people's faces because that was about the time when the big shift to right. health and wellness was happening. Sure. You know, it's funny. I went from PepsiCo where we would, you know, be at company meetings, and as you yep. can imagine, given the company, like every soda everywhere, right. there's chips everywhere. I show up to Equinox, and people are like, "Yeah, get rid of all of that stuff out of your office." Sure. <laughs> And so walking through Equinox, like what was your biggest mm. takeaway there? And then um, Equinox is loaded with unbelievable people. Um, and I think that's what I immediately fell in love with the fitness industry yep. in general, because it's just amazing. Like people who come to work at a company like Equinox, A, they're passionate about health and wellness. So that's sure. just a baseline. But B, they just love helping people become fitter Mm -hmm. and healthier. Like that you see just the absolute joy that a personal trainer gets when this person who came in, who had this goal achieves it. You know, it's a a really, really neat thing to watch. So I think for me, I, I really found when I got to Equinox, I was like, ah, this is when everything lines up, you mm-hmm. know, when you, it's the stuff that you really love and other people really love, it's all together. And then you decide to leave. Yeah. <laughs> no, at some point, well, I, yeah. I, think, I think you're pretty good and I want to get to this. Yeah. You're, you're pretty good at knowing when to leave. Yes. I think that's a skill a lot of people don't have. I agree. I think some people yes. leave too quick and some yes. people stay too long and yes. you seem to just have nailed this just right. But, yeah. But, but, so, uh, it's not always easy though, because right. to your point, um, People who leave too soon, which I think has become, unfortunately, for the younger generation, sure. quite a you know standard thing is all this job hopping. And I can honestly say I had several jobs in my career where I desperately wanted to leave sooner than I did, um, but I gutted it out because I kind of knew that if you leave too soon, you know right. that's when you look back and realize that there was no depth of experience. So what is the right time? Yeah. And how do you know? Like- yeah. I mean, I've, I actually do feel now that I have a, a, a stronger sense of this. Like at the time, I think I was more trying to figure it out. It's often easier to see things with hindsight. But sure. I think the best time is when you truly have achieved mastery. And what I mean mm. by that is that you know, if you've been in a job a year, so where one time I made a bad too soon decision was when I left Virgin Atlantic to go to Virgin Megastores, where right? mm-hmm. I eventually got fired. I was only at Virgin Atlantic for one year and we had had extraordinary success in that year. I was in advertising, we'd done some great work and this is when I'm partying with Richard. And, and so I was like, I'm done, this is, I got this, you know. And actually I'd had some great success Yes, we worked hard, but a lot of it was luck as well. Like I hadn't really grounded that experience yet. And looking back, I sort of feel like, you know, it was a fun time being there, but I can't say I carried anything forward Mm -hmm. that I really used later in my career. So that other times when I really stuck with it, like Gatorade, I'll be honest, like especially I'd just given birth to my third child, the entire business is like falling apart. We lost 500 million off the top line in one year. I mean, it was intense. And there were many nights of crying, what the hell have I done? Like, I wanted to leave, but I also knew, as my boss reminded me all the time, when you're crossing a river, it's just as hard to get to the other side as it is to go back. Sure, I like (laughs) that. Which was a great, great great line. line. And and he was right, because I just knew, not only did we need to get successfully to the turnaround, which we did, but then you've got to show that you can sustain it. You've, sure. you've got to really get to the other side. So I do think that that my biggest advice, particularly to young people, is don't give up too soon because you don't want to be this person that has 
a lot of sort of surface experiences and no depth. At right. some point, you've got to have depth. So one of the one of the things I love in the book is you say, "Get over yourself." Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yes, it's actually probably one of my favorite chapters. Um, it, I think it it really came out of the the personal experience I had of kind of earlier in my career and my life getting a little bit too cocky a little bit too confident and just not realizing that when you get like that you are by definition tuning out feedback and help right. and advice that can make you better and so this idea of get over yourself is like just because you sold your business and had a financial windfall or you got some 20 under 20 award it's what we're up to right. now it used to be 40 under 40 then right. 30 then 20 and then right. yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean that you are sort of the second coming that's just like great it's a it's a little moment now you, what are you doing right. now to really continue to grow learn and grow and so this idea of getting over yourself is about recognizing what you can be doing differently or better to improve yourself right. every single day. So if you were to try to step outside of yourself, mm. what do you think it is about you that has made you so successful as mm. a leader and a CEO mm. and a marketer and all the great things you you know are known for doing well? Yeah. Like if you were to step outside, like what is it about you, like your DNA, your qualities, like what makes you tick, like what? Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, it's so funny because I don't, I always struggle with the kind of when people say you've been very successful. I don't know why, because I tend to think I, what I have done is figured out how to maximize my own potential, whether that's successful or not, sure. how society defines it, I right. guess. But to me, I think what I have done is started off in life with pretty average capabilities but relentlessly being willing to learn and grow right <laughs> and so is it work ethic curiosity yeah it's work ethic for sure i mean that is one thing that i seem to have been born with i've just i love to work hard i love to push myself i love to set really aggressive goals but then with that i think i've been willing to take risks and own the consequences that come with them good and bad because mm -hmm. you know sometimes those risks like you know leaving the amazing comfort of Nike to your point before when is it the right time to leave I mean I was on the leadership track I had so much right. support I adored that company that was like the hardest decision ever to leave right. there and go into this thing that was unknown that was broken that was you know <laughs> just so many reasons why it could have gone wrong but it was that kind of risk. It's like, it's either, I remember walking out the door going, this is either going to be the worst decision I ever made right. for my career, or it will absolutely springboard me to a different level. And there's no question, like, I look back now, I think had I stayed put, there's no way I would have gone mm. on to do the things I've done. So the book is called Extreme You, mm -hmm. not Balance You. <laughs> so why, yeah, I'm just so curious, yeah. like, why, like, talk to me about why Extreme yeah. works and why it's important and, and where balance goes wrong yeah because yeah because balance is a part of it by the way sure. um because the idea of being extreme you is taking the the time and the life journey to discover that the unique qualities that make you unique where you stand in the world and that you can really exploit to your best potential and that does include balance because that does include the balance of you know, I can't do what I do without an amazing partner in my life sure. and my kids. That also includes, I spent a lot of time actually in the book talking about you'll have these intense periods and then you also need to know when to rest, when to be joyful, when to celebrate, when to, so you know. So how, how do you know when to rest? For someone, I think a lot yeah. of type A's have that problem. Yeah. Because like the, you love work and you're passionate yeah. about it and you go and go and go. And like, how do you, how, how do yeah. you avoid burnout or health scare like yeah. how do you know what does that I, look like for you i think that's a great question because i do feel like um it's taken me i don't know I, I wish it didn't just take life experience to learn it so i nearly did burn out um 
when I was at Gatorade, when I just had my third child and I, you know, was, I basically skipped maternity leave. I did all of the things wrong that a Taipei personality does when you're trying to, to, you know, what we were in a pretty difficult battle and I was just like trying so hard and I nearly did burn out. It was bad. Like I can remember looking back now, like I was an ineffective parent. I was an ineffective lead. Like I was just falling apart and Having gone through that experience now, I'm so much more aware of when I'm getting close to that moment. Mm-hmm. For example, two weeks ago, I've just, you know, I'm in the middle of six months into a new job, six weeks into a book tour. I had been going like 90 hours a week for six months and I suddenly felt my entire, like I was exhausted and I felt it and I saw it coming and I was like, okay, stop. <laughs> you know, like this time I think I'm, I'm just better at sensing when it's coming and knowing I have to stop and I have to turn things off and I tell people around me, you know, that this, that's what I'm doing. So what do you do? What does that look like for you? Do you have like a routine? It's like, okay, we're going to this safe place or we go to a a vacation or I tune out. Like, what do you do? Uh, Memorial weekend, I was asleep a lot. That's good. (laughs) That's good. Uh, But no, I mean, first of all, I'd say like in terms of day-to-day getting through those intense periods because we all have them so if you're in business whatever it may be you're you know taking your company public something's happening a major event where you know you have to knuckle down first of all how do you get through that intense period so in my case I'm I knew going into it like I was regularly seeing my chiropractor every weekend because I find that really helps I was absolutely committed to my workouts. Like yep. there were, that was the first, like I was absolutely committed to my sleep. You know, yep. I made sure. How many hours of sleep do you get? I get at least seven hours a oh, night, wow. swear by it. Do you have like, a, ever a problem sleeping or? No, like I used to. Sure. And the days when I got quite burned out, I was kind of that I could get down to four or five hours a night. And that to me, everything falls apart when you do that. Sure. So. So to me, once you know what your basic habits are just to make machine work, but that's the day to day, then I think you also have to say like this weekend, like I had in my head, I've got to make it to Memorial Day and then things are going to be much calmer in the summer. Do you ever run into the problem where you find yourself saying that a lot? Saying, saying like, I got to get to this point and then I'll, <laughs> and then I'll, yeah, I definitely do that a lot. But what I will say is I definitely, I definitely do that a lot. Yeah. But I take, <laughs> I do give myself the, the respite. So what right. I mean by that is like, I definitely, when I go on vacation, I really go on vacation. Right. You know, I'm not one of these people who just can't ever turn it off. Right. And so something else you talk about in the mm. book, which I love is, is this idea of winning. Mm. and and the self-esteem culture yeah our favorite topic yeah so like there are winners Mm. there are losers yes talk about that yes not everyone gets a trophy yes so this whole thing started for me um raising kids you know when your kids come home from uh minor 12 10 and 8 and they come home from youth sports and they rock up with these participation trophies. And I'm like, the fuck is that? You know, why have you, you didn't win anything. So then you combine that with, as a parent, you, you see in our culture today, a lot of helicopter parenting sure. and whether that's sort of people overly, you know, protecting them when they're playing or, you know, kid gets in trouble at school, parent jumps in and complains to the school, <laughs> you know, there's all that, right? Yep. So then the more I got into it, then I started researching. It's horrifying, the statistics around the number of parents um, percentage-wise compared to the old days that helped their kids get their first job, that helped them. Like, it goes on and on and on. And this, it was all, if you go back to the history, like 25 years ago, the self-esteem movement, it was believed that by sort of pumping people's esteem Mm -hmm. up that they were going to be more successful and what nobody knew and i think we only see it now is that you're actually dampening their potential because if you tell a kid that everyone's a winner you get a trophy for just showing up you're super special when that person walks into the workforce and suddenly it is very competitive out there yeah it's it how they don't they're not equipped to compete and It is a competitive world we live in. I I don't think that anyone would dispute that. Like if you want to be successful in in business, certainly I I don't think it's about dog eat dog, I'm trying to kill another competitor, but you have to push yourself 
to do the best that you can do. And and I think, you know. So how do you instill that in children when when culturally they're receiving mixed messages? Where it's like, you know, they come home with a trophy and you're like, no, put that down. No, I actually do. (laughs) (laughs) No. My poor children are like, so no, because I actually think as parents, like we've got to set the example as parents and as leaders. So like as a parent, A, trophies like i say to them no you can't have it but i do reallocate them to so for example my daughter was working really 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 hard on her reading so it's like if you get from here to here you can earn that trophy like setting a real goal for her um but also as leaders like in the workplace i think you know one of the things that drives me crazy is our success culture you know we, we spend so much time awarding people for their achievements and never talking about the truth of the behind the scenes, like the mistakes, the failures, whatever. Like I went into LinkedIn and I posted very publicly what I call my anti-resume. I mean, there's all (laughs) these great successes and there's, here's all the places Sarah fucked up because that is part of becoming the best version of you is both sides of it. Right. Do you find it's a little more difficult to give feedback that's real and honest Mm. when there is a culture of everything's okay yeah definitely without destroying something without like yeah and it's this it's the single biggest kind of i don't know if the word is complaint but when i have been out you know promoting the book it's interesting i talk to younger audiences and they are so relieved and excited to have someone be vulnerable and tell them all the messages of the book right that it is okay to not be perfect to fail to etc the older audiences, so Gen X and boomers, like it's just like, oh, I don't know how to talk to these young kids right. because I say one thing negative and they fall apart, right. you know. And I think it's both sides kind of need to understand that generationally we were raised so differently. Right. So we both have to figure out how to meet the other person where they're coming from and help them sure. overcome these. So generally, you mentioned the two generations. How do they view fitness and wellness differently? Yeah. yeah. Someone asked me the other day, like, you know, I guess the, the stats would show that millennials are, you know, significantly down in terms of they're not running and, right. you know, doing running events and all the triathlons like color and run has exploded, which is like yeah. anti-running event. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But then at the same time, you look out there and you see Spartans and Tough Mudders sure. and these really aggressive, like difficult events um, really thriving. So... I, I would say, like, when I look at the, at least the sort of psychographic data sure. that we look at at Flywheel, I don't think that, I, I think the number of people who are um, psychographically wired to be what we call a competitive athlete, so this mm-hmm. is someone who played sports in high school, is competitively minded, like if they're on a treadmill and the person next to them is running, they must be faster than them, you know, right. we've all met those kind of people. They statistically are proportionately the same amount of every generation right. from what we can see. So I don't know that that the spirit of competition has gone away. I just don't know if at the other end of the spectrum, people who have come into fitness and wellness from less of that sort of sport right. side of things and maybe more of just a healthy living side, right. maybe they're looking for different outlets. Or do, do you think... Any of this is driven by the by social media and the feeling of connection that people are mm. yearning for, like the experiences, mm. like they want to connect, they want to connect yeah. with people in like a physical group fitness, like in a yes. per- performance class. Like how much of it is driven by technology? Think people going back yeah. to events and races and classes yeah. versus. 20 years ago, we went to Equinox and we just lifted weights and went on the treadmill. Yeah, we were done. And maybe some people did classes, but not like today. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think definitely, like, you look at the numbers around boutique fitness. I mean, boutique fitness has exploded in the last five to ten years, and I think that's a lot to do with it. It's that sense of community. And, like, what's going to... It's a huge trend. Mm. I don't think it's going anywhere, no. but like clearly it's gone. Like any trend, like you've got mm. extremes. Yeah. And in and, and New York, you see huge extremes. Yeah. Like we, we like joke about it. It's like, oh, there's a $60 underwater spinning, <laughs> you know, nude yoga class yeah. with green juice. Yeah. And, and it's like, how many people are going to go to this for yeah. how long? For how like, long? What do you think yeah. has legs and yeah. what doesn't? 
That's a great question. I mean, I think... And what markets, too? Like, yeah. some stuff will always... Because New York is New York, and LA yeah. is LA. I'm sure there are some concepts that there'll yeah. be a very small number of people that will spend money on it, and that'll be it. But then yeah. other stuff's not going to translate to Atlanta. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, I think in the end, I with everything fitness, I kind of always come back to what is the the problem that it's solving for the consumer. And so most people... I shouldn't say most people. I think there's there's two very wildly different psychographics that come into fitness. One is about performance, improvement, sure. and results. So that's clearly my wheelhouse sure. at Flywheel. Another is about like internal spirituality, wellness, yep. feeling good, right? So if the concept is like deeply delivering on one of those, sure. I think it's got legs to your point. Yep. If it's just I'm throwing a bunch of shit together to see if right, it works, right. I think those are the things that you're like, wait, this is not really right. making a lot of sense. Well, I, something we've talked about here is in, in some ways, you know, wellness, fitness has grown so much that uh, maybe in some ways it's just another thing that like really wealthy, high maintenance women do. <laughs> and instead of a diet, it's a detox. Mm. And like, look, yeah. there's nothing yeah. wrong with that if it gets you in the door. Yeah. But like, what's is that does that really last is that enough is that yeah. is it a lifestyle yeah i mean that's a very good question because i think that there's for those of us who have been in the fitness lifestyle since way before this trend sure <laughs> i'm sure you're probably sure. one of them i definitely i mean i was i was i've been working out every day since i was 13 you well, know it's like i can't say that <laughs> Well, because it just was always like physicality was always just such a sure. kind of part of who I was. So you, you do look at these people coming in now and I think I tend to have a, probably a more cynical radar than some of like the imposters. You know, it's like, are you, you know, when you see some of the luxury brands, I remember we would laugh at this at Equinox when Chanel was making surfboards. It's like, sure really you know sure. is that is you're just gobbing on to what is a trend right you know as opposed to those of us who have been in like deeply into the science of fitness for years and years and years and pursuing right. physical betterment you know right so i think in the end to answer your question i would not be surprised if overall cultural trends that you know we were all wearing athleisure today we're probably going to be back to denim or something different in five years right. and i think a bunch of those people you just talked about will move on to whatever sure. is next but i think i think the fitness pie has for sure widened and i think people have come into it who have now caught the really legitimate i'm doing it right f for my own self so what do you think has legs like what brands what concepts yeah. that, that like you think are going to be around yeah that are going to rise with the tide i definitely have to say i want to see uh some of these boutique uh concepts scale more mm -hmm. like i think right now people have asked me a lot is the boutique scene over i was like are you kidding me we're at the beginning like right. i feel like you and i have um a great a partner and friend in common, Lou Frankfurt, yep. who we both um, have so much admiration for. And he definitely has the investment thesis that, you know, like department stores shifted to boutique retail sure. in the 90s, and that trend has continued today and mm -hmm. is still continuing. Yep. You know, we're five years into this. We have a yep. long way to go. And and I think, you know, I look at Flywheel and SoulCycle and Peloton, like I, these, these are the brands that have proven that you can start in a very narrow place and you right. know scale and blow up to be right. something quite um, relevant in multiple multiple markets. So now I'm really excited to see who else is going to you know have a concept, find the right partners, investors, leaders, etc., to sure. really help it scale to the next level because I think it's going to happen. I think sure. it should happen. Any other brands or like areas outside of fitness you think are interesting in wellness that you're like? I mean, I'm curious about what's going on in athleisure right now sure. because I, I have I predicted this one five years ago. <laughs> I feel like when I was at Equinox, you know, it was the time you know Lulu had gone from zero to sure. you know, and suddenly there was eight million Lulus going right, in the tour right. saying I'm the next this, I'm the next this, and. 
I think at the end that you know the consumer doesn't need a hundred million versions right. of the exact same thing. But I think now we're starting to see the really sustained players hanging on and doing really nicely. Sure. And, you know, there's definitely some great brands out there, like the outdoor voices of sure. the world that I think are doing some really nice stuff. At the same time, I think Nike, Under Armour, Lulu, yep. the big guys are like, whoa, they're, they're really having right. a headwind now because eventually this massive tailwind where all of us were just wearing workout gear right. is starting to shift away. So what does that mean? I think that means everybody has to double down and figure out how to be more sort of meaningful to the consumer in terms right. of bringing legitimate well, innovation. I, the way I think about it this way, we're talking about fashion at its core. Yeah, And fashion totally. is fickle. Totally. Like fashion, 100%. what stays for five, ten years, like denim is sort of denim. I yeah. feel like people wear denim, they always wear denim. But yeah. like I can't think of other things that have really had a long shelf life yeah. in fashion. I know, although statistically, I'm sure you know this, denim has been in decline the last five years. Oh, while, really? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, no, what happened basically is all of the denim well, actually, I'm not wearing denim. Maybe sales <laughs> shifted over to athleisure. Really? Yeah, and that's where I think all these guys had the tailwinds of just, the, I think, the health and wellness culture, to your point about right. fashion gobs on to what is the sort of right. trend of the day that meant everyone who was in this sort of quote-unquote performance sure. area was benefiting now i think people are going to start trending back the other way so what's left right. you know that becomes it has to be really authentic right really well designed really well concepted right. for the consumer so what role do you think community plays in this movement yeah i am really passionate about the role of community because so first of all, I think as a macro trend, when we've seen retail really struggle in the last five years as e-commerce, you know, we're all shopping online for goods now, products and goods. It's interesting to me that boutique fitness, restaurants, theme parks, things that bring human beings together in an experiential way are doing very well. Mm -hmm. And I think that tells me something that tells me that um, those kind of businesses that are about like a human deep interaction more than just, you know, sure. a Facebook like are the ones that are going to start having a lot of momentum because I do think people are wanting con connection. Right. No, no doubt about it. And I think they want it certainly in a social networking kind of way. Sure. And I think it's up to businesses like ours to bring the virtual and the real together. You see it in our studios every day. Like the fact that, you know, the instructor knew it was my birthday. That's a big deal. You know, that's just a moment that makes me feel happy for Wouldn't the day. Wouldn't you say your birthday? No, well, I'm okay. saying if it was. <laughs> yeah, so what does community look like at Flywheel? Yeah, I mean. Is it, is it that? Is that connection between the students? Is it the connection with the instructor? Yeah, and I think, it, honestly, it's the connection between the employees and the riders and right. pulses because I think that's a big difference in building businesses today that, didn't exist so much certainly when I started my career is just this blurring of the line you know right. it's like because every employee who's out there on social media talking about whatever you're doing in your business mm -hmm. is partly themselves is partly a representative of the business sure. you know and the it's amazing to me just this blurring of riders that are riding with us today who like i'd like to be an instructor can i you know, right, like, right. It's, it's it's amazing right. that's how it happens and i think that's great and i think that building community for the future is about just really blurring those lines right. so everyone can sort of help build it together and how do you build it you know communities that one of the reasons i brought it up it's something mm. we're passionate about here it's yeah. in our dna and it's definitely a hot topic right now yeah and a lot of big brands will say like all right like community yeah but like you, you can't really just create it out of thin air <laughs> you can't just like hire someone and go do community. Yeah. like what what in your opinion like what does like what are the qualities yeah of like a real vibrant genuine community yeah i mean i think it sounds so cliche but it's to me it all begins with authenticity of i've really learned this from the many brands i've worked at like when brands suddenly say oh i need to build i need to have a community manager and a content strategy right and they're just like blasting a bunch of corporate written stuff who cares sure. whereas 
as a community builder, like I, I think I found even through the experience of writing this book and then taking the role I took at Flywheel, being 100% authentically myself, speaking with mm-hmm. my real voice and encouraging my teams to do the same is what people can connect to. The minute you try and sort of put them into some sort of guardrails that you can and can't, you know, that's when it becomes watered down. And I think that people don't have something so real to connect to. Right. So one of the things I love about the book, you have a lot of different voices in there. A lot of great, (laughs) no, you talk to some amazing leaders in business. Uh, if you had to pick a few mm. that really stood out to you mm. in this process of writing the book, like what are some of those, who are some of those people and what are some of those lessons? Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is I felt so honored that the people in it were, agreed to be in it. And what blew me away was that you, I, I heard the same concepts and the same even language from people from such different walks of life. I mean, Condoleezza Rice and Mr. Cartoon, the tattoo artist, (laughs) slightly different life experiences, but it's amazing to me how they, they all collectively sort of had developed these techniques that were very similar from different different places. And to answer your question, I think, I mean, every story in there was, I came away just all inspired (laughs) after I interviewed them. But um, I think a couple that have really stuck with me certainly recently Bodie Miller the skier yep. was phenomenal in terms of um he taught me so much about just what is goal setting how how do you push yourself sure. a little bit of what we were talking about earlier the co- sort of concept of for him like the rest of the world might expect him to get x number of medals mm-hmm. but if it's not his subjective goal it doesn't matter right you know? right um so i found him to be just fascinating um I think um, Angela Arendt from Apple sure. was really to the question you asked before about when to to make decisions to leave different mm-hmm. jobs. I mean, she's done that, made some really ballsy moves that you kind of go, how did you know? And right. it's interesting, her process. And I think what I loved about her insights was that the balancing of the left brain and right brain, you sure. know, in terms of understanding how to make good decisions. But I think in the end, what I learned from pretty much all of them and that was really why I wrote the book is that they none of them got participation trophies when they were growing up we'll start there and none of them um sort of had these expectations placed on them so early to be so perfect and to me that was a really important message to get out to young people everyone's ambitious in their 20s you should be but it's okay right. not to know where you're going, right. you know? Well, something you also talk about, which I love, is this idea of understanding your strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. And like, to me, it's like self-awareness. But oh. talk, why is that yeah. so important? And what have you learned, you know, if, if you were to speak to your own specific strengths and weaknesses, like, and you're yeah. a CEO, like, how, how do you... Oh, yeah. What does that look like? So, it's funny. I remember when I started my career that all of the career counseling people would teach you if you're ever in a job interview don't ever admit to a weakness like don't ever ever do it make something up you know that's the kiss of death so I remember all along you'd always you'd sort of been taught that you have to make sure you've got all the answers and I suddenly realized along the way that when you actually walk into an interview so when I was interviewing with uh, Lou who's the lead investor in my company and I was like Here's what I'm really great at. So I came up through the creative side of business. So I'm very good at all that side of it, visioning the future of the business, et cetera. I said, here's where I generally have struggled. And it's I've worked really hard to get to where I am now. So in my case, it took me years to understand the finance side of the business, right? And here's where I can tell you I need to surround myself with the skills that will help me. And the minute you put that out there, I'm sure you had the same experience. Instead of this feeling of I'm coming to work every day and I have to sort of cover up the fact that I'm not very good at this thing, it just changes the game because you can openly say, oh, just FYI, I'm not caught up on that, whatever, you know. And and it just makes it such a richer experience of working with people that work for you and that people support you. Right. So what is, you talk about Flywheel, like what is the vision for Flywheel? Yeah. so we are, if you're 
uh, listeners don't know, a uh, boutique cycling business. Yeah. So we have how many studio- 42 and, studios. And yeah, so by the time this goes live, you'll yes. have how, like... Actually, <laughs> uh, no, we'll still, we just opened number 42. Okay. So we'll still Where's be the around. latest? The latest one we just opened in Santa Monica. When are you opening? I see Williamsburg. Williamsburg just opened a month ago. Okay. And it's rocking, by the way. Um, And I will perhaps sneakily say to your listeners that our next location is going to be Denver, Colorado. That's coming next year, which we're super excited about. Um, So we're very bullish on the studio business because, you know, to the question you asked before about boutiques, one of the neat things about Flywheel is we have a very, very defined consumer target. Like you've experienced it, I'm sure. It has technology that tracks your performance. You can compete with other people sure. in the room. So not surprisingly, we get right. quite type A personalities right. that come to Flywheel. But um, the neat thing about that is it does translate into secondary markets. We're already in uh, North Carolina, do mm-hmm. very, very well there. And it just shows us that the concept works in the major markets and the secondary. So that's great. We want to keep developing that. And we've announced uh, Flywheel Anywhere, which is we're beginning the streaming content service. Like You can buy the bike, put it in your home and um, stream our classes. So effectively, what is our vision is we really want to meet our consumer wherever they are. Like if you're near our studio, great. If you're on the road, and you want to take a class, great. If you want to be in your home, great. Like right. we can really help you engage with our community wherever you may be. So what advice do you have for anyone listening who was maybe stuck at their career or they're type A and they just feel like they're this whole weakness thing is new or I don't know if I should leave or I'm <laughs> law or I'm a millennial and I'm lost. Like what, you know, if you had any overgeneralized advice <laughs> to anyone mm. who's just looking, searching mm. for something yeah. in the workplace. I think my biggest overgeneralized piece of <laughs> advice would be to make shit happen for right. yourself. And what I mean by that is like, I think the one thing that drives me the most crazy with people you know, who are earlier on in their careers is when you get the classic you know, they come into your office and I'm looking for your advice. What should I do next? How do I break through this barrier? And I'm all about giving advice, but then nothing happens. And to me, it's like the most successful careers that I've observed, young, old, in between, are people that just made opportunities happen for themselves. So whether that's taking a new job, like you know, people often say to me, well, but the job I'm looking for isn't open yet. So figure out a creative way to get in the door. Like I tried to get a job one time working for the um, cable TV network, the tennis channel. I was, when I was out of work, I was desperate. And I put together like this huge pitch with like, I put it in a ball, a whole holder full of tennis balls and took it up right. to the, <laughs> like, and I put tons of research and work into it. I didn't get a job, but I got, they sure. called me back and I got an interview, like make it right. happen, you know? and. I think that for some reason, the last sort of 20, 30 years of the self-esteem movement, we didn't sort of do so much teaching people that it's up to you. Like, if you want to get a promotion, go out and land a new client and bring it in. Right. <laughs> so you mentioned you mentioned an interview. What do you look for when you interview people? Mm. What are the questions you ask? I always ask what is their greatest uh success and what is the most epic fail because i want to and i tend to go really deep on the failure part (laughs) like because you'll get the rote answer that has been you know rehearsed and then i'll go and the next one and the next one (laughs) because that tells me someone who actually has had the willingness to take risks to succeed but fail and Mm -hmm. learn from it and what they know about themselves what i'm looking for more than anything is self-awareness and humility because i feel like if people have that you can shape a lot. Right. So what's next for you? What's next for me? Well, I definitely have a few things going on with Flywheel, <laughs> but um, I'm also really excited with Extreme U. One of the fun things that we did um, with the book, and I don't know if you saw it on our website, is I worked with the um, with Adam Grant from sure, Wharton, you probably know nice Adam, guy. and his team on creating this really cute quiz where you can basically fill out today how extreme are you being like how much of your own potential are you living up to and i actually am really excited to figure out how to deepen that tool to help 
identify like high potential young people who may not have had the same opportunities to help connect them to opportunities because I think there's something quite interesting there. And so last question, we sort of touched on this earlier, but I, I want to close with it. Mm. If you could go back to that 26-year-old mm. partying on the boat with Richard Branson <laughs> and Ken or whatever you were doing and give yourself advice, mm. what would that advice be? Mm. I think it would just be just relax a little. It's yeah. all okay. I don't know, but you're extreme you. I know, no, but I think that's part of it. I think I would just say, like, take it all in and enjoy it. And, like, it's never as bad as you think it is. The it's fails never are. As it's never as it good as you think it is. So just, like, just relax. It's okay. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Everyone, you got to check out Sarah's book, Extreme You. Pick it up. It's amazing. It is a must if you're an entrepreneur or even if you just work. Yeah, exactly. Everyone who works should pick up should the book. Should pick it up. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you. Yeah.